We'll be in 2 Timothy today, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. You know, as I looked at this passage, uh, I began to kind of think over my life and, and, and really ask myself, who are some different people that I have set before me as examples to follow? And, and then, you know, it kind of goes to which ones of those were worthy examples to follow and, and which ones of those people were not necessarily worthy examples to follow. As a child, I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was the coolest uh, individual alive. I had, I had real problems saying his name, um, as everybody should, but I just thought, mainly because the man has muscles in his earlobes, that it was just the coolest and, and just the highest of all that should be emulated in life and, and, and should be really pursued. I wasn't gifted genetically to make that my own, right? As, as you look at me, I'm filling out my shirt, but not because I've got muscles in my earlobes. I've got, you know, decidedly different things going on. And so that's probably not the greatest person I could have chose to, to model my life after and, and, and really didn't last very long. It was like, you know, four to four and a half or four to five. But for those brief few months, I was Conan. I mean, <clears throat> This is what happens in the 80s when your cousins have satellite and, and very little parental supervision. You watch things you shouldn't, and then for the month following, you sleep on top of a Bible because you watch things you shouldn't have. And so I begin to think that, that maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't the greatest person in the world I should emulate. And I you know, begin to think through different other men that had highly impacted me in my life. I think of uh, a guy named Mark Adderholt, who was doing a, a journeyman term with the IMB in Stavanger, Norway, and he was our youth pastor uh, there in Norway when I was in junior high, and Mark had a tremendous impact on me and my life for what it is to take up the call of the gospel to leave uh, Pampa, Texas, where he is from, and for the first time he ever left the U.S. to go to Stavanger, Norway. I could tell that he was uh, not from... Uh, Europe hadn't lived there very long because when we picked him up at the airport in the middle of winter, he had a t-shirt and shorts on. And that is not uh, Norway attire. I mean, that's just, that's just not proper attire to wear there, especially in the wintertime. I can think of Jeff Fritcher, my youth pastor in high school, and the tremendous impact he had on me and my life for the gospel. I, th I can think of Chris Osborne at Central Baptist in College Station who, who had and continues to have a tremendous impact on my life for the gospel. But all of us have these people Right? You can think of, of some pastor, some friend, your, your father, your mother, your, your child maybe even, who, who sparks in you an interest in the gospel and drives you to greater study and to, to careful reflection. And Paul and Timothy have this connection. Paul and Timothy have this tremendous relationship that is founded and surrounded on the gospel. Let me read for us. Verses 12 through 18, then we'll walk through them together. Paul writes in verse 12, he says, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard into the day what was entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all those who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. 
May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant mercy, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, admittedly, this is a strange beginning, right? And we're missing something. In verse 12, it opens up, it says, which, I, which is why I suffer as I do, which leads us to ask, you know, what was the front part of this sentence? Because that's just a horrible way. You don't begin a sermon with a comma, right? You see what follows before then. So if we look back and we reflect quickly on verse 11, which is where we ended last week, Paul wrote, he says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So when he opens up this passage and says, which is why I suffer as I do, we recognize the reason Paul is suffering is because he finds himself living a life which is moving directly in line with the calling of God, right? Paul was called to three things. He was called to be a preacher, he was called to be an apostle, and he was called to be a teacher. And his suffering is moving in line with that. His suffering is moving in line with that thing that he was called to be. He wasn't suffering because he was just a ne'er-do-well. He wasn't suffering because he put himself in situations. He wasn't suffering because he was highly indebted. He wasn't suffering because he cheated on his wife. He wasn't suffering because he was a horrible parent. He was suffering because he was living his life to the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. Do you see that? Paul writes and he says, but I am not ashamed. You know, the interesting thing about this is that when Paul wrote Timothy, he said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. He wasn't writing Timothy and writing and saying to him, look, you are ashamed. You need to stop being ashamed. But when Paul writes of himself, this is what we see. He says, look, I am currently suffering. He's using the present tense there. He says, I'm writing you from the midst of a, of a cave prison. The water drips. It's, it's horrible, it's, it's compact. There are a lot of people inside this prison with Paul. The conditions are abysmal. He is actually suffering in the present tense. But even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of being ridiculed, even in the midst of, of, of being beaten, of being deprived of food, from water, even in the midst of all of these things, as Paul reflects on the gospel, as he reflects on his situation and all the things that have happened prior to lead him to that day, his wholehearted, full-bore endorsement of the gospel states, I am not ashamed. And what an amazing thing that we might find ourselves standing with Paul with the declaration in our lives, we find ourselves suffering for the gospel. And maybe what that looks like in our lives is, is different from Paul. We're not suffering in a prison, but maybe as you go to share the gospel with coworkers, you're sharing with family, you face ostracism, you face difficulty in relationships. But we recognize that in that, that we too should declare, as Paul does, that we are not ashamed. Now look at how Paul is able to base his situation. Paul bases it not upon his own self-assurance. Now Paul, 
likely an extrovert, right? Paul would walk up to people, engage them in conversation, and just kind of wax eloquent. That's not me. And, and maybe that's you. Maybe you're the type of person that can walk into a room and, and you, you find people and you walk up, hey, John, how are you? And you shake hands. And, How's your wife? How's Jenny doing? Oh, how's Tom? How's Kathy? And, and you move on and you're just kind of playing the, play the room, talking to all the people, and everybody knows you and everything about you because you're so good at engaging people. That's, that's not me, right? I, I do a decent job standing in front of people and, and talking, but, but look at the distance we've got here. Now, one of the things I talked to Jay about when we built the stage, I said, look, I know we have walls over there. Maybe we have a wall all the way across and some plexiglass. That would give me separation. That would make me feel more at ease. Maybe we could haze the glass and people could just hear my voice and occasionally I could say, I am the great and powerful Oz. <clears throat> we didn't think that'd go over well on a Sunday morning, so we went against it. I'm not an extrovert. It, it really takes me out of my comfort zone to engage people. I, I, do, I do well one-on-one in small groups, but you put me in a large room and expect me to, to make the rounds and talk to people, my, my palms sweat and I stumble over words, and I kid you not, I'm pretty sure my tongue swells. <laughs> Paul didn't have that problem. Paul didn't have that problem. He goes out and he engages people, but his assurance on the gospel isn't based upon his natural inclination to be a people person. Look at what he says. He says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Paul says the reason I'm not ashamed has got zero to do with me. It's got nothing to do with me, the way that God has gifted me. The reason I'm not ashamed is because I know exactly on whom I have believed. You see, God in Paul's mind and Jesus weren't some theological abstraction. They weren't something that he had read about and, and, and compartmentalized in his life, and, and these operated in certain spheres of influence. But the way Paul addresses this, he says, I recognize that God moved in my life for salvation. Now, God moved in Paul's life for salvation in a dramatic way that we continue to read about in the book of Acts. But Paul thinks back to that movement of God in his life that Damascus Road experience. And he says in, in, in that movement, he came to understand God and his manifestation of Jesus, and he firmly knew who God was. And Paul reflects on his current situation, and he says, I know who God is. And furthermore, he looks to the future, and he says, I know who God will be. He is the unchanging one. He is the eternal one. The person in whom Paul has placed his belief and his trust is God, and he is without change. See, Paul's able to stand in all these myriad of situations. He's able to stand and suffer. He's able to endure all of these hardships, and he places it because of his belief, the object of his belief. He says, I know whom I believe. Furthermore, he says, and I am convinced that he is able as Paul reflects on God and who he is, Paul looks at the characteristics of God and God's ability. And he recognizes that Paul always knew that God was able. He continues to recognize that God is able, and he looks to the future, and he says God will always be able. 
His hand does not falter. His arm does not grow weak. God is able to guard until that day what was entrusted to Paul. Now you can take this a few different ways. You can, you can parse this out and say, what was entrusted to Paul and exactly what is God guarding? What is God safeguarding? You see, Paul recognizes, and, and, and I'm going to tell you what it is and then I'm going to argue for it. Paul recognizes that his salvation is that which is entrusted to God. Paul writes, he says, I know whom I have believed. He's talking about belief language. He's not ashamed of his chains. His chains stand for the gospel and his proclamation of it. He says that I am convinced there's no hesitancy in Paul. There's no ambiguity about his direction and his his certitude. He recognizes that God is able to maintain and keep his salvation until the day Jesus Christ returns in judgment. You see, by all occurrences, as they looked upon Paul's life, the prisoners, the government, maybe some who had moved loosely in Christian circles, they looked upon Paul's life and they saw a man in a precarious situation. They saw one who who was certainly not in control of the situation that he found himself in. But Paul reflects on that situation. And he recognizes it doesn't matter what happens to his body. It doesn't matter what happens in his life. That God is safeguarding. That God is protecting. And that God is keeping watch over Paul's salvation. For all eternity. I begin to think about this, and I, I'd read an account some years ago about a pastor in Zimbabwe who, right before he was martyred, he, he wrote these words, and it was found on him. It was found on his person after he was martyred. Let me read this to you, and let it be an encouragement to you. As pastor writes, he says, "I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast." I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, and my my present makes sense. My future is secure. Do you hear in that the words of Paul? I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he is able. He continues, and he says... I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in his presence, and walk by patience. I am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way rough, my companions are few, my guide reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. 
And he concludes, he says, I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Man, what a tremendous word. Now think about his position. Think about Paul's position. For Paul, martyrdom was, was days, maybe weeks, if he was lucky, months away. For this young pastor riding in Zimbabwe, he could hear the fighting around him. He knew it wouldn't be long before they came to take his life. But when he writes these words, the one thing missing from this, fear, shame, bitterness, disillusionment. Man, there are no regrets. The one thing missing from his life is a statement of regret. He addresses this so well. This surety that Paul had even in the face of suffering, even in the face of persecution, and for both of these men, even in the case of impending martyrdom. Now Paul sets out in verse 13, and he begins to move, and he's talking, and he's giving instruction to Timothy. But lest we begin to think that, that there's something inherently special about Timothy. I came across these words from Oswald Chambers this week. And he had this interesting thing to say. He says, all through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because, the, because of their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. God uses nobodies. He goes on, he says, he chose to use somebodies only when they renounced their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Our resources, our natural giftings, our athleticism, or maybe you're just naturally an extrovert, can be liabilities in the face of being used by God. They can be liabilities because our tendency is to rest upon those things which come more naturally to us, right? If you are good at math and horrible at art, you likely are not going to pursue a career as an artist. If, if you can't build anything, if you're terrible at woodwork, you're likely not going to pursue a career as a carpenter. There are reasons they haven't sought me out to help them with the construction of the stage these past few weeks. It's not that funny. But these aren't my giftings. I've got zero education that has led me to be able to do any of these things. I can carry in, in, in hammers. I can carry nails. I'm a very good grunt and gopher. I go for things to bring them so that they can do neat things with them, right? But they're not seeking out my expertise on making this thing happen. I'm more of a big ideas person. When we rest on those things we're naturally good at, it's, it's easier for us in life. It's absolutely easier for us. 
But the Christian life is one of sacrifice. It is one of exercising and moving in those areas in ways that we are not naturally good at and inclined to do. Now look what Paul instructs Timothy in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Paul recognizes that it, it is unlikely anyway that he and Timothy will have an opportunity to be reunited. So he wants to tell him how to persevere, how to stay on in ministry, how to stay on as a Christianity, stay on as a Christian, how to further the spread of Christianity. And he tells him that he is to follow the pattern of sound words. Paul is giving Timothy an instruction that he is to reflect on all the teaching that Paul has passed on to him. Now, the sum and substance of Paul's teaching is what? Is it the law or is it gospel? I give you multiple choice. The gospel. The, the sum total of Paul's teaching is the gospel. He has passed on to Timothy these sound words. He has passed on to Timothy the gospel. He has built up in Timothy that thing which was present in his grandmother and his mother and is now present in him. He has encouraged him to share and grow in the gospel. Now look at this, though. He says he's to follow the sound words. And if you stop there, what he is calling Timothy to is adherence to a principle. He's calling him to do something, right? If you stop there, you miss it. Because what he calls him to is a certain kind of following. He says, follow the sound words that you've heard from me, but you're to do it in this way. In faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's former way of existence was effectively rule following. His former way of existence said there's a right and wrong, we do the right thing, we, we don't do the wrong thing. You know, for many of us, that's what Christianity's become. We're so captivated with, with making sure we don't do the wrong thing, right? We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't vote Democrat. And, and, and we think that, that those are the things that, that gain us favor before God. We, we somehow impart those things, we bring those things into our Christianity, and we think it is about not doing the wrong thing. And making sure that we do the right thing. Man, that is so mis misguided. That is so wrong-headed. See, Paul writes and he tells them, you follow the sound words, you follow the, the call of the gospel in your lives, but you do it in the right way. You do it in faith and love. You do it in the kindness and characteristics that are found in Christ. Notice the location that these come from. They come from Christ. As Christians, we're, we're obligated, we're called to live moral lives, but moral lives not as our society dictates, moral lives as we find in the pattern of life given by Jesus. And we do these things not in, in some attempt at securing righteousness before God, but we do these things since we are righteous before God, since we have righteousness in us imputed to us by the work of Christ. And we do them in faith and love. And that is how Timothy 
is supposed to continue. That's how he's supposed to follow this pattern. He's supposed to do it the right way. You know, Paul writes, and he lets Timothy know that this thing he has called him to is not to be done in and of his own power. If you were to go out and you were to try and, and, and live out the gospel with everybody you encounter, with your difficult spouse, with your difficult children and your difficult wife or husband or car or all of the awful, awful things that are solely unique to you in your life, and you were going to do it in your own strength, this is what you're going to find yourself doing. Failing. Miserably. Every time. You're going to find yourself struggling you're going to find yourself frustrated. You're going to find yourself completely and utterly dejected. Because what you're trying to do is impossible. But Paul cues into Timothy, and he lets us know how, how we can accomplish such a feat. Paul writes him, and he says, follow the sound words. And then verse 14, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And he further goes on and he says that we are to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Part of guarding the good deposit is following those sound words. The sound words that Paul's talking about is the gospel. That thing that Timothy is told that he is to guard is the gospel. But the enabling, the enabling for Timothy to do such a thing is by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Now look at the interesting thing about this. Paul tells him that it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now flip back to verse 5. What did Paul say about Timothy's own lineage of faith? He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul is, is reminding Timothy, he's ensuring that Timothy has no doubts as to the security and the finality of his salvation. By using these same words, Timothy is reinforced in his idea that his salvation rests firmly, but that he is to rest and trust and be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Timothy represents the next generation of the gospel. Paul recognizes that his opportunity to pour into others is likely at an end. But in Timothy, the hope of the gospel continues. In Timothy, in his work there in Ephesus, the hope of the gospel perseveres and continues. Man, just thinking on that, it led me to ask myself this question this week, and maybe it'll lead you to the same thing. I already told you about those guys that were, were influential in my life, those ones that I, seek, I sought to, to emulate, I sought to pattern myself after. We, we, we all have that. For a lot of you in this church, it is, it's Elaine's husband. It's Pastor Hamilton. When you think of, of somebody godly, that's who you think of, and you think about the way that he demonstrated his life before you, the way that he instructed you and called you into a strict adherence and following of the gospel, 
But who are you pouring yourself into? He poured himself into you, but who are you pouring yourself into? Paul recognized in Timothy the continuance of his ministry. He recognized in Timothy the furtherance of the kingdom of God by the message being carried into further generations. And the question comes to all of us, who are we pouring ourselves into? Now look what he does in 15 through 18. Paul's giving him a pretty clear instruction, a pretty clear encouragement in 12 through 14. He's let him know he's not ashamed. He's let him know that that he is firmly convinced of exactly who God is, and he calls Timothy in some ways to do that same thing in his life. Paul gives personal testimony to prompt action in the life of Timothy. But here in 15 through 18, he gives us an example of two options that could be followed. Paul writes and he says, Timothy, in the midst of this situation, in the midst of my surety, in the midst of knowing who I believed and who I'm convinced of, in the midst of all this, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Paul writes and what he describes is a lonely existence. What Paul describes here is is a recognition that all of these people were following him. All of these people were emulating his life, seeking to be his disciples, seeking to grow and, and do the same things in their lives that they saw Paul doing in his. And what we can discern from the text is that when Paul was imprisoned, some of these people were absolutely ashamed of him. When Paul went into prison, here for the the second time, man, that was just too much for them. The cost of following Christ was too much. They were embarrassed that Paul was going to be martyred. He had pushed them past what their comfort zone was for their spirituality, for their expression of faith in Christ Jesus. And they abandoned Paul. Now, Paul doesn't just leave it in the general. He doesn't just say, these people abandoned me, but he gives us two names here. He talks about Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, why would Paul list these two names? Well, likely, these were men from Ephesus. You remember that Timothy is there ministering in Ephesus. Paul wrote this second letter to Timothy that it might encourage him and so that he might read it to those gathered there in the assembly. And when he mentions these two men, see, it's one thing to say, look, I lost all my friends, among whom were John and Dale. Woo! I lost my friends is one thing, but when I mention you guys by name, everybody says, man, I can't wait to see those guys. I'm going to let the air out of their tires. Now, they didn't really abandon me. John and Dale, we're, we're, we're tight, we're friends, and so don't let the air out of their tires. But when these names are mentioned in the gathering in Ephesus, people go back and they reflect and they think, I remember serving alongside him when we served the widows. And I remember taking them food when they were sick. I remember taking up the offering with them. What it prompts in the body there in Ephesus is a recollection of all the ways these guys displayed faithfulness 
and a remembrance and, and really an alerting that each of us could be capable of such action. There's a humbling that takes place. Man, there's a thankfulness that takes place. God, thank you that you have kept me humble. God, thank you that you have kept me operating in this way because you know that I struggle with pride. Because you know, God, that <clears throat> that I need to be kept low so that I might continue to experience a full devotion and reliance on you. Now, Paul talks about those who have abandoned him. But look at the positive. Verse 16, he said, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. We see two examples, a positive and a negative. Phagellus and Hermogenes, they heard about him. Man, they were ashamed of those chains. They didn't want to go anywhere near him, and they bailed on Paul. But Onesiphorus, when he heard about Paul's chains, he went to him. Paul says he refreshed him over and over. He looked for opportunities to serve Paul. And in verse 17, he tells us that when Onesiphorus had arrived in Rome, that he searched for Paul earnestly and found him. This is a man who, when he heard about Paul's need, traveled to a distant city. This is a man that when he heard that Paul needed something, when he heard Paul was suffering, he put himself out there. He went to great lengths. He put himself in, in harm's way. He put himself in a place to be humiliated. He put himself in a place to suffer because he wanted to provide for one who was serving God. Paul says, he found me. And then Paul has this prayer for Onesiphorus. He said, may the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. What we see in Onesiphorus is one who is in Ephesus when Paul and Timothy were ministering there together, and he was pouring himself out to minister to all of those in the church. He was moving and operating to the glory and the furtherance of the kingdom of God there in Ephesus. Man, did he heard that Paul was in need, he heard of the way that Paul was suffering, and he wasn't ashamed. It didn't cause him to falter in his faith, but what it caused was him to exercise his faith and display this movement of God's grace through Onesiphorus to Paul. See, the question for us as we reflect on this passage, Do you remember all those people whose examples you followed? How are you pouring yourself into the next generation? And what response is the gospel prompting in your life? Through your hesitancy to speak and endorse the gospel, through your hesitancy to move in evangelism, what does that say about your reflection of the gospel? 
See, I never really have to wonder how people view my relationship with my wife. And I think this is probably a a great example for, for any of us who are married. You can tell husbands that love their wives and wives that love their husbands. They don't spend time running them down. But you can see in them a deep love. I'm talking about more than just you know, hugging and, and public displays of affection, but you can see in them a deep care and an earnest provision for their spouse. Now, the Bible gives us a clear picture that our love for our spouse, our love for our children, and our families should be as hate next to our love for God. And friends, our love for God is most prominently displayed in our acts of serving him. And the paramount act that we might serve him is by communicating the gospel, telling others the saving message of Jesus Christ. And this is something I have challenged the staff with so that every Monday we sit down and we go around the table and I ask each and every one of them, Who did you share the gospel with this week? That is something that should be present in all of our lives. If we would move, if we would move to be faithful with the gospel, revival will come. See, expecting some revivalist to show up in town George Whitfield, when he would come to town and this short, squatty man would stand there with his crossed eyes and he would, he would proclaim the wonders of God and thousands of people would come to hear him. Those days were largely past. If we want revival to break out in Greenville, it is going to happen through men and women taking seriously the call and command of our Lord Jesus Christ to share that message broadly, to share it well, and to share it often. Let me pray for us.